Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18. Still getting back into the practice of things here uh, on Sunday mornings, kind of going back to a little bit of normal anyway, and I failed to get the page number out of the Pew Bible, so if someone would shout that out really quickly for us. Matthew chapter 18, if you happen to see one of those pew Bibles there and you don't have a Bible, someone's going to tell us in just a second what page that's on, Matthew 18, 823. And uh, if you don't own your own Bible, we would um, encourage you to take that one as a gift from us. If you do own one and you don't have it with you, you can turn to 823, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. We're going to talk this morning on the reconciling grace of church discipline. We've been in a series, and this is the last in that series, called The Pillars of the Church. We have talked about how the Reformers uh, spoke about pillars of the church, uh, the preaching of God's Word, the administration of the ordinances, that is, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, we would also say, as a part of that, as a sort of subcategory of that, that you need to have the proper church officers in place for the administration of those um, Uh, ordinances and for the preaching of God's Word, and even, in a sense, what we'll talk about this morning in regard to church discipline, that is elders and deacons. We looked at that last week, and this morning we'll look at, finally, uh, the reconciling grace of church discipline. The Reformers, as well, thought that this was important, and um, it's not that we take our cues uh, solely from the Reformers, um, but they were taking their cues from the Scripture, and I think they're right in assessing that these are the pillars of a church and the important matters of a church, uh, what is a local assembly, and how is it uh, brought together, and what are the things upon which it stands, and, and these are the matters that we believe uh, to be uh, important for that. So if you have uh, your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 18, uh, if you would please stand, I'm going to read aloud as you follow along, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew the Apostle writes, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there am I among them. You may be seated, that is the word of God. May it be a blessing to you as you've heard it now, both read in the Old and New Testament aloud. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, as we come to a topic this morning that is perhaps new for some and perhaps familiar for others and perhaps shocking to some, uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace that we need to understand these things by your Holy Spirit who inspired these words in the original autographs, and now, Lord, we ask that he would illuminate our understanding as well. Lord, we pray that we would hold each other accountable as is appropriate within the local assembly, and Lord, that we ought to desire to live holy lives as well. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we do this morning, dear ones, come to one of the most controversial topics of the church in our day, which is church discipline. And it is such a controversy because we live in such an individualistic and relativistic culture. Even if one belongs to a local church, the feeling, the feeling often is, who are you to tell me I am sinning? On the one hand, we get it. We all sin. And some sin in grievous ways. And God is merciful in Christ Jesus to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. However, we must recognize the issue here is not simply sinning, not to say that sinning is simple in any way, but this is unrepentant and ongoing sin. That is the issue that is addressed in Matthew 18 as well as in other places in the Scripture. 
Uh, we will see this as we move through our text today and really throughout our study. We will uh, jump around a bit. But before we even get into this first text, I want us to notice the context in which uh, these words from Jesus are found. Look at Matthew chapter 18, just above, and look at verse 12 of Matthew 18. Look at what it says there. It says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In the context, the little ones are those that Jesus has gathered around him to demonstrate the faith uh, that is required for one to, to follow him like a child. And then he warns about those who would deceive these that are like children that it would be better if they would have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the ocean as a strong warning against those who would lead astray those who would believe in Him. And now He's speaking of those who would believe in Him, and He's speaking of those who would go astray. And, And what does the shepherd do, as Jesus illustrates here? The shepherd goes to find the one who has gone astray. He goes to find them, and He brings them back to the fold. This is what we will see throughout this as we study together. But also in the previous context uh, to this, Jesus is speaking of temptation and how to deal with it. By cutting out those things which tempt us so we can live righteously for God. So we see all of these things wrapped up in here. We see uh, the idea of those who would come to faith in Jesus. We see the idea of temptation to sin and how to deal with that temptation. Uh, We see the warning against those who would lead astray the sheep. And yet we also see those who would go astray as sheep needing to be brought back into the fold. All of these sort of build the context around which Jesus speaks of church discipline. So we must have these in mind as we think about this. The context of our passage deals with one who's, uh, who is in sin and um, are not taking steps to be righteous and how we rescue them from peril. That's the whole point here. The whole point is reconciliation. It's, it's rescuing those who would be in peril from their very own decision to continue in sin. Now let's put a practical illustration to this. Imagine, if you will, that we had a couple in our fellowship named Fred and Jan. I don't think we have any Freds and Jans in here, so we're not thinking of anybody in particular. Forgive me if we do, but I don't think so. Let's say, though, that this couple has been coming to FBC for quite some time and have gotten to know quite a few folks and have been discipled by one of our elders and... They're in disciple-making relationships. One day, one of us sees Fred walking into a local restaurant and notice that he has his arm around someone who is not his wife. Our mind is struck with the oddness of this. Maybe it wasn't Fred, is our first thought. No, but we're sure of it. It was him. But he was definitely not with Jan. Perhaps our first thought is, we shouldn't meddle in this. We don't know the real story here. What do we do? What does the Bible tell us about something along these lines? Perhaps we don't know what the issue is with Fred. Perhaps we were mistaken But it behooves us to find out. It behooves us for the sake of this brother to lovingly and gently confront him as we'll see in our text today. And and, and this um, whole idea, this whole concept has as a whole litany, a a, a veritable uh, kaleidoscope of, of scenarios that we could walk through in our mind today. But it is done within the context of the local church. It is done within the context of relationship. It is done within the context of discipleship and love for one another. And we must keep that in mind. There is not a harshness to this. There is a a desire to reconcile, to rescue. Here's the main point, and uh, this is uh, found on the back of your worship folder for you this morning. Or if you're uh, here with us via live stream, we just want to 
say hello and, and, and thanks for joining us via that way. It should, be, should have been emailed to you. Church discipline is the gracious act of seeking to reconcile impenitent sinners to God and the church. Church discipline is the gracious act of seeking to reconcile impenitent sinners to God and the church. And we're going to see four steps in the process of seeking to reconcile an impenitent and continuing in sin professing believer this morning. Four steps in this process. And I think that we'll see as we look over the variety of passages this morning, though this is our main text, we'll see how this is to be gracious and loving and kind and the way in which we're to do it, which is to the glory of God. Look at verse 15, if you would, with me. The first step we see is personal confrontation. Personal confrontation. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It seems fairly obvious to us what is going on here, but let's break it down this morning as we walk through this first step. Some translations, and perhaps your translations, might say, if your brother sins, simply just if your brother sins. And others say, if your brother sins against you. There's a textual variant there. Some early manuscripts don't have against you. It seems best to take it to the most general understanding because that's what the rest of the passages uh, relating to this seem to do. Uh, we think about Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. If a brother is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual restore such a one. So we can see the application of both. That our brother sins against us or just simply Galatians 6.1, our brother sins. We'll look at Galatians 6 again. But we get this general idea here. Here's what it means. We are to hold each other accountable for our sins. The idea is not to be constantly looking from the outside in, seeking to find something wrong with someone, uh, you know, nitpicking at every little thing. But the idea here is one of relationship, of discipleship that is going on. The early church would have had no concept of a rugged individualism that has so poisoned our culture. In, in fact, uh, the church, as you often hear from this pulpit, ought to really be counterculture in that regard. There is an accountability that comes with especially what we would call covenant church membership. And it is not so that we can seek to be on the lookout for those who we get to discipline by some sense of authority and heavy-handedness. No, this is out of love and concern and the idea of reconciling one another and the fact that you need this, I need this, all of us need this. This is why God has given us the church. We are to be in disciple-making relationships with one another. And as such, when we see someone sinning, we confront them on that sin. And that goes for anyone, including and perhaps especially the elders of the church. Now the word confrontation seems harsh, but that is what we're doing. The word used here for tell him is the same word used elsewhere for rebuke. To reprove them, to correct them. And there is the way to do that in, in love and yet in truth. One of the loving ways to do it, in fact the way that we are commanded to do it, is to go to that person privately as it says here in the text. This implies that you are not running to another person and telling them, did you hear about what Fred did? Now this is, if there's any sense in which we... we feel as though this kind of confrontation seems antithetical to the church, my first response to that is, how dare we? Because typically this is what we do. We gossip. If there's any sort of way that we can be confronted as a church, I'm not speaking specifically of this local assembly, but if the shoe fits, maybe that's how we ought to say it, the way that we typically deal with other sin is we go and talk to someone else about it. And dear ones, that in and of itself is sin. That is gossip. That is not how we deal with someone else's sin. We deal with it by going to the person. We go to the person. The best way for you to do this is not to be on the outside looking in. You need to be in this person's life. This is a part of disciple making. 
And in all, in all reality, this level of confrontation ought to be happening all the time in the church. This is personal confrontation. And I don't mean, again, that we're on some sort of a scouting mission to figure out who can I confront this week. This is what relationship does, though, is it not? I mean, married couples in here today who are believers together in a marriage, does this not occur in your house when you are dealing with the sin of your spouse one to another? This happens regularly in my home, typically Amber to me. I thank you for the couple of laughs. Some of you really believe that it does happen often. But it it should be. It's how we love one another. Jesus earlier in this text says that if your hand offends you, you are to cut it off because it's better to go into eternity without a hand than to burn in the hell, uh, the fire of hell for eternity. This is serious. We're not playing games here. This isn't about, um, again, nitpicking, scouting, how am I going to find a fault with someone today? This is in the midst of relationship that we say, brother, sister, you have sinned. And let me lovingly call you to an account because I do love you and I care about your soul. Look at the motivation behind it. If he listens to you, if your brother hears you on the matter of his sin, you have gained your brother. You've gained your brother. This is a part of what we need, dear ones. We all sin. We all need people in our lives showing us where we fall short. We all need people in our lives who will rejoice that they have regained their brother. Whether you've against, whether you've sinned against uh, someone or sin in some other way, we need to be steered back in a right direction. And what a joy there is in restoration. There is such a joy in reconciled relationships. Our desire for reconciliation, in fact, is motivated by the gospel, by the good news. From this side of the cross, we now know what it took for man to be reconciled to God. And if someone is claiming to be in Christ, there is a weightiness to sin that we should understand because of the price that was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to desire reconciliation in a horizontal way and in a vertical way. And and, and brothers and sisters, we have that, don't we? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The vertical is taken care of. Now what about the horizontal? If your brother sins against you, go to that one. Tell him his sin. If he sins at all, and you see that, and you have the opportunity to call them to repentance... Do that. This is gospel living together, if you will. Now, if your brother listens to you, you have gained your brother. The unfortunate thing is sometimes that brother or sister is not going to listen. Let me say this. The authority is not you. The authority is Scripture. You must point to the Scriptures. If you rebel against your brother's confrontation, as it is seen in the Scripture, you are rebelling not against them, but against God. So, if you are the one who is being confronted and you say, who are you to call me out of my sin? I am to say, I am no one. I am a sinner too. But this is what God's Word says. And I love you too much to allow you to continue in sin. And you're not rebelling against me. You're rebelling against God's word. And then if you are the one who is lovingly calling that person to an account, here is my encouragement to you. Give it time. They may or may not, within that moment, repent. They may, in fact, react. Who are you? And they might storm off and... You might have opportunity in a couple of days to call them back and say, hey, have you thought about that? Or they might call you in a couple of days and say, you know what, you were right. 
Please forgive me. Give it time. Don't rush. Let the Spirit work. Another point of application to us is whenever it comes to a time of reproving, we must prepare our hearts rightly. What does Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 7 say? Let's turn there. Just a left hand turn your Bible from where we are, just over to Matthew chapter 7. Everybody loves to camp out on verse 1, but they need to keep reading. Matthew 7 and verse 1 Judge not that you be not judged, for. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you, 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 you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. How do we prepare ourselves? We We first make sure that we have confessed our sin before we go and confront someone else about their sin. It doesn't say, don't confront here. It says, make sure that you have taken care of your own sin. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. I said we would go go to this again. Galatians chapter 6. How do we prepare ourselves to lovingly confront someone. By the way, if you are going to confront someone and you are going to confess your own sin first, guess what you're doing? You are praying. <laughs> you are preparing yourself through prayer. Notice Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, let me just pause for a moment and tell you, when it says if anyone is caught in any transgression, caught there can mean, in one sense, caught up in, like they can't break free from a sin pattern. Or it could mean like someone is caught with their hand in the cookie jar. Like, oh, they're caught off guard. You caught them in the sin. Guess which one it means? Both. (laughs) Both are times where we need to confront. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Let me pause for a moment and say, who is the one who is spiritual? Is that the spiritual giants of the church? They're the ones who are to do it. That's what it means. Oh, I'm off the hook. I don't have to deal with it. I'm not a spiritual giant. Hey, you guys remember last week when I said that no one is spiritual giants? Not even the elders in the church are spiritual giants? No, you who are spiritual implies that you have prepared yourself to do this. You you have reconciled yourself in confession. And those who are spiritual should restore him in what kind of a spirit? A spirit of gentleness a spirit of gentleness now just some of you have this sort of all guns drawn everything loaded out of the gate sort of approach to relationships Um, lovingly i tell you calm down okay i know it's done out of love i know you want to approach this person because you have a fervor for the truth and you love them right but but a spirit of gentleness is how we're to approach this Some of us just have that kind of intense personality that we are to be gentle. To be gentle. Notice this. How else are we to prepare ourselves? Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. What's the other way that we're to prepare in confrontation of sin? We're to prepare so that we recognize that we might be tempted by the very thing that we are confronting the person concerning. Now, this may seem silly to you, but this is an illustration uh, from a counselor I once heard. He had someone come to him because this person was being gluttonous. This person was eating too much of a particular kind of ice cream. Now, this person really recognized that it was something they desperately needed help, and I'm not joking. We shouldn't make light of that. They came. They recognized this is something that has become a sin pattern in my life. And the counselor said, the worst mistake I made was asking What kind of ice cream was it? Now that's funny. (laughs) Because we recognize what happened, right? If this person is so obsessed with this ice cream, it must be pretty good. And so the counselor was tempted to go and find the ice cream. I think it was Bluebell. If you've ever had Bluebell ice cream, it is very good. But it was a particular flavor of that. But we need to recognize our propensity towards sin as well. Our propensity to fall in the same way that others fall. So let's go back to our scenario. You approach Fred and ask him about the situation. 
Typically, one of three things may happen. Number one, if there is truly sin, he repents. He repents of that. Yes, I was with someone who was not my wife and I should not have been. Please forgive me. And depending upon whether or not Fred has some sort of a role in the church or so, you know, something along those lines, various consequences may follow. Certainly, there needs to be a conversation with his wife. And, but forgiveness does not always mean there are no consequences. We recognize that. Sin always bears consequences. And, and we can get into that in a minute. The second thing that may happen is that Fred may say, hey, there's been a misunderstanding here. Actually, who you saw me with was my sister visiting from out of town. And just as a sign of affection, I had my arm around her as we walked into the restaurant. Oh, okay. Clears it up, right? Misunderstanding taken care of. If Fred's telling the truth and we have no reason to doubt him, his character is good and clear. Thirdly, there could be the response of Fred saying, yes, I did. And quite frankly, I don't care and leave me alone. What next? What do we do in that situation? If someone is impenitent, and and again, the the kaleidoscope of really all the things that could be a scenario here are too many to name. But if someone does not repent, what do we do? We secondly have a group confrontation. Look at verse 16. Oh, I got to get back to the right. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. I got to get back to the right passage. Matthew 18 and verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Notice it says two or three witnesses to establish the charges, establish the issue. Now, here's where we get into a little bit of interpretive challenge when we think about this in regard to a local assembly. And it's not a bad thing. It's just when do we, at what point do we involve possibly church leadership or elders stepping in. This could be that step. This could be. It's not necessarily always, but this could be the step where there's the, the elders are now involved in it as the two or three witnesses. It doesn't have to be that. But what is the purpose of this meeting? It is to establish the facts. It's to establish the facts. Why is this necessary? Well, maybe the accusation is unfounded. There may be misunderstanding that didn't get cleared up in step one. I mean, perhaps it was someone who had sinned against you, and, and it, it was appeared to be sin, and it really wasn't. And so these two or three witnesses come along to establish the facts of that. Is this really something uh, that is sinful? Maybe at that moment where two or three witnesses are brought in, Both parties recognize they need to deal with a sinful issue. The other witnesses are brought in after the initial confrontation, not to badger, but to establish the facts. This issue is always about reconciliation and restoration. And we actually see an establishment of this pattern in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, you don't have to turn there, but the scriptures there say that Um, there are to be two or three witnesses to establish the facts concerning something. And in in the case of the nation of Israel, it was for the sake of knowing what happened in regard to a particular sin. Uh, The question comes up, do the two or three witnesses... Had they, did they have to witness what had gone on? Some say yes, some say no. It seems best to me to understand this. As the witnesses are not witnesses to the offense particularly, though they could be, but to the follow-up conversation so that the evidence can be established. If it is established, once again, we see repentance brings restoration. We, we, we want to gain back this brother. That's the purpose of it. it it's, the, it's the lost sheep coming back to the fold. That's the purpose of it. Repentance brings restoration. One of the keys to this smaller group is that there is no need for anyone else to know. There is a sense in which we are seeking to preserve the character of the person who has sinned. If it is one-on-one, it's 
totally preserved. If it's um, two or three witnesses to establish the facts and there is sin involved, uh, certainly there is not a sense in which this is widespread. Perhaps if it's the situation in our scenario, we need to bring the wife in as a part of that to help reconcile that relationship as well. Or another party, depending on what's going on. But we keep the, um, the issue as one that is not for public consumption necessarily. Now you can imagine that there are things that could go on in a local assembly that would need to have full public exposure. In fact, when it comes to the sin of an elder, if there is an unrepentant elder, that elder is uh, warned twice and then is publicly shown to be unfit for the office of elder. You don't actually go through all the steps when it comes to an elder. If it is proven that an elder is impenitent, he is unwilling to repent, or he has disqualified himself because of the nature of the uh, public office, he is reprimanded before the congregation. Uh, uh, Paul tells Timothy that. And and there are cases where uh, the, the sense of necessarily the sin itself isn't exposed, but if you have somebody who's in a leadership position that, you know, has something that's very public, you have to say this person is stepping away from ministry because things have happened. You don't have to necessarily get into the details of that. James says, let him who desires to be a teacher be careful because of the accountability that comes with that. But in most cases, it it helps... helps maintain the person's character. However, if this person refuses to listen to this small group of people, there's an establishment of the truth of the matter. And therefore, if they say, no, I don't repent, there is a further step. In our scenario, Fred has truly sinned and refuses to listen to this small group of brothers and sisters that are trying to call him back with love and grace. There is a third step. There is a congregational confrontation. Verse 17 If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Here is where certainly we understand that the elders must step in. If we're not sure in the second uh, step if elders are to be a part, here certainly is the place where elders are to step in. The the, the elders step into uh, this position on behalf of the church in order to now weigh in on the situation to determine whether or not it is something that is publicly told to the church. The body of Christ, first the elders and then the congregation, is now engaged in the effort of reconciliation and restoration. Remember, the issue is not one of sin alone, because we all sin all the time. It is the issue of unrepentant sin. The person refuses to deal with sin. The church is now responsible to seek the righteous response of that person. Again, please keep in mind, the issue here is one of love And one of grace, we are seeking to call that person to reconciliation with the church and with God. They are refusing to repent of their sin. And and the purpose is not to shame them publicly, but to, to say to the church, Church, we love this person so much, we need to call them back to repentance. It is done lovingly through the means that God has prescribed, as we said in Matthew 7, not in... A myopic judgment that doesn't see our own sin, but in humility and gentleness, as Galatians 6 says. This is not a witch hunt. This is lovingly calling a brother or sister to be reconciled to the body, the body of Christ, and to Christ himself. It is a gracious call. Now, I have been in scenarios where it has gotten to level 2, And the cusp of level three, I have been in the conversation with someone who refuses to repent and who then is said lovingly and gently is told, you know what will happen next. And in the particular case, I'm thinking of the person said, yes, you're going to send your holy lynch mob after me. That is not what we are doing. That person is, was clearly showing their desire to not repent, but to continue in their sin, which was 
grievous against his wife and children and against the church. And when he left that office, dear ones, I wept. I wept at his callousness. I wept at his lack of desire to be reconciled to God and to the body. I wept not only for him, I wept for his wife and for his children, but I wept because my own heart is so stubborn sometimes, is it not? We are to lovingly call these to repentance. In our scenario, we lovingly call Fred to repentance. Letters, phone calls, emails, personal interaction. Again, not badgering, not coming out with all guns blazing, not saying one week later, This has now gone to the point of fourth step of church discipline. Again, we give time for the Spirit to work. If this person is in Christ, they have professed to be in Christ. They are a church member. They would not be able to be a a member of the church if they had not professed faith in Christ. We wait patiently for God to work through the means of those who are calling this person to repentance. This person refuses even to listen to the church, it says, though. Verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. After time, the church is to accept the person's non-response and continued rebellion as indicative of their spiritual state. Why, again, just to emphasize this, why do we give it time? We want the Spirit to work. However, over time, if they continue to not repent, they have, by all means, actually disciplined themselves because they have disfellowshipped themselves by not reconciling to the body, to God And ultimately, when this decision is made, it's made corporately, and we are in agreement with heaven. That's what verses 18 through 20 means. Look at it again. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is... Jesus speaking, by the way, don't forget, this is the Lord Jesus telling us these things. And he is saying, when this final step occurs, this is heaven's stamp on that excommunication, if you will. What does this look like? Let me give you a few scenarios from the scriptures. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even amongst the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. There is a man in the church in Corinth participating in incest. And Paul says, not even the pagans accept this. And look at what he says in verse 2. And you are arrogant. In other words, you think that you stand as so um, advanced by allowing this. You're arrogant about it. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Here's Paul's bringing in this concept that Jesus speaks of. You know, this is something that Jesus will put his stamp of approval on in regard to putting this person out of the fellowship. And we're going to understand what that means in just a moment. But Paul says, 
This judgment should already have been pronounced. I have already pronounced it. This person should be disfellowshipped. Okay? Turn over to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Here we see another shortcut in the church discipline process. If someone is being divisive, After two warnings, they're disfellowshipped. About 1 Timothy chapter 5. Left hand turn. 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is what I spoke of earlier. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. What does it mean, though, as we talk about putting someone out of fellowship, what does it mean to do so? How do we disfellowship someone? Does it mean we can't let them enter our building? Well, in some cases, if there's, a, if there's an issue of danger, certainly we would be careful about that. <clears throat> We'd be careful to not allow someone into our fellowship, who would be a danger to others. But typically, the answer to that is no. It does mean, however, that they cannot partake of the normal life of the church until they publicly repent. They cannot come into the fellowship as one who is welcomed as a believer in the fellowship. Because you are treating them as if they are. Now listen, they're... Whether or not they're reconciled to God by way of uh, you know, redemption through Christ, that's between them and God. God knows. We are treating them as if they're an unbeliever. And what do we do to unbelievers who come into our fellowship? Like, what do we do to them? Like, we tar and feather them. No, I'm not saying that way. What, what is for them? What do we give them? We give them the gospel. If an unrepentant person from our fellowship is put out, it doesn't mean they can't show up on a Sunday morning, but what are they going to hear? You need to repent of your sin. You need to trust the gospel. Well, I already have. Well, if you have, then you need to repent publicly of this thing that we have publicly said you have been sinning in and you are unwilling to repent of. And it also means that we keep the table from them. Because what do we do with unbelievers who come through our doors? And ask to participate in the table. Don't participate in the table. If you're not in Christ, you are not to take the Lord's table. Now again, in the case of someone who's been disciplined in our church, we can know for sure. I mean, practically, frankly, if someone is here and they're trying to take the Lord's table and they're under church discipline, I would ask one of the elders to go to them and say, you cannot participate in this today. What is the point, though? The point is reconciliation. The point is that they would miss the true life of the church. That that would be the final call upon their heart. The conviction upon their heart is that I miss this. I miss being in regular fellowship with the church. Typically, when people get to that step, they just simply do not show up anymore. If we hear that they're at another church, we call that church to let them know this is where this person stands with us. They are unrepentant. Now, that church can do with it what they want, but we are compelled by the Scriptures to do that. We call them to repentance. Now, what is the hope? What is the hope? The hope is forgiveness. The hope is forgiveness. Look at Matthew 18 again. 
After Jesus has said this, look at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Lord, look how forgiving I'm being. I hear you, Jesus. I get it. Someone sins. They need to repent. I'm going to give them seven times. Seven is the perfect number. Here we go. Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say 70 times seven. What's the point? Whether it's 77 or 490, if you're keeping track, the problem is with you. I mean, I couldn't even get up to seven necessarily. (laughs) To not forgive. Jesus then gives this great illustration of a king who forgives a servant of a lifetime of debt. That servant turns around and is unwilling to forgive his fellow servant for a day's wage. And Jesus says, if you're unwilling to forgive as this servant was, your father will not forgive you. Does that mean that God won't forgive us? No, he does forgive us. Jesus is saying, that's the lens through which you're to see this. You have been forgiven of so much. Paul even picks up this in Ephesians. How can you not forgive when God has forgiven you of so much? We are to forgive. Again, does this mean no consequences? It, of course not. But, but remember that God is in charge of that. Listen, you will never satisfy your sense of just, justice. Only God can do that. That does not mean if a criminal act, take, act takes place, we do not pursue legal action. But God has put that in place too, Romans 13. But we look to what God has done in releasing us from our debt, and we release others as well. Forgiveness. We forgive. That's the hope. Just as God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus, we forgive one another. The other hope is reconciliation. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 5. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it, not me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Most Bible scholars, and I tend to agree, think that this is the man from 1 Corinthians. The man who was put out of the church for his incest. (laughs) And if the Corinthian church was kind of arrogant in regard to allowing this kind of sin, they kind of now are too prideful and, hey, we put this guy out of the church. Look how, how, how much he's suffering for this. And Paul is saying this, look, if the man has repented, the punishment of the majority is enough. Verse 7, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. In other words, if we are unwilling to forgive and we come with the spirit of not being willing to reconcile, it's Satan who we've given into. We must reconcile. Doesn't equate to no consequences. Once again, just to emphasize that, you don't make the thief of the church the treasurer. Okay? But you also don't call someone who has stolen once a thief by character. If it is ongoing unrepentant sin and they repent and they come back, we, we need to be wise about in what ways we have them engage in ministry. Doesn't mean there's no consequences. If you run through a glass window you will get cuts, right? You may not have meant to do that. 
but the consequence is still very real. The consequence of sin is real, but God calls us to reconciliation. The truth with all of our sin is that we are ultimately saying there's something better than Jesus, that there are far better treasures in following our way than following God's way. When we're calling somebody to repentance, we're saying, be obedient because obedience is worship. And you say that you love God and he says that what is best for you is that you follow him. And in that will be the most joy. We are calling people to reconcile because there is joy in obedience. There's joy in resting in Christ. God's way should be the way in which we find most delight. Perhaps you're here this morning and you need to be reconciled to God for the very first time. If you've heard this message I want to remind you that God has provided a way for reconciliation through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be truly reconciled. The most important reconciliation is that. Right now, if you're not in Christ, you are God's enemy. And you hate God. You may not hate your version of God, but you hate the God of the Bible. And... He needs to come in and give you life and reconcile you to himself. My call to you this morning is turn from your sin and trust in him. Paul says that while we were still enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. Trust in him today. For those of us in Christ, are we willing to obey God and the command to confront our brothers and sisters when we see them sinning or when they have sinned against us? Or maybe you're one who has been confronted and you're willingly rebelling against the word of God. There is forgiveness. Just as there's a kaleidoscope of sins and ways that, that we could give scenarios about that, there's also a kaleidoscope of consequences. We're not saying that every consequence is the same, but there are consequences for sin. But there is forgiveness. If you're unwilling to repent, what does that say about your heart? What does that say about the relationship you claim to have with God through Jesus Christ? Dear ones, this is a very difficult topic, but one that God gives us in his word and one that we must follow. Not in the sake of seeking to be on the lookout for sin so that we can get somebody with a gotcha, but so that we can lovingly call and be called to an account for the sake of loving God and loving others. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you today for your word. We pray for those who do not know you, that they may come to know you through Christ today. And for those of us who do, that we would take these encouragements and live by them so that we might love you and love and serve our church family well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.